Creative Babble. This podcast contains disturbing and violent content. Listener discretion is advised. 911. The voice on the other end of this 911 call is Jeremy Banks. He's calling for help because his 24-year-old girlfriend is lying on the floor in a pool of her own blood, holding his gun. You see, Jeremy Banks is actually a sheriff's deputy in St. Augustine, Florida. Is she still breathing? No. And his girlfriend, Michelle O'Connell, well, she wasn't supposed to die tonight. In fact, she was packing up her things and getting ready to move out. They were breaking up. So what went wrong? I'm Javier Leva, host of the Pretend Podcast. When I first heard about the case involving the death of Michelle O'Connell in St. John's County, Florida, I wanted to learn more. As a journalist and documentarian, I felt like the story isn't over, but I didn't want to work on this project alone. So I asked my friend John Taylor from the Twisted Podcast if he would be interested in working on this project with me to see if we could uncover new information or provide a different perspective on the story. You see, John is a private investigator and a former U.S. Secret Service agent. His background is exactly the expertise I need to navigate this case. John, a year ago when we first started looking into the story, we learned that someone else had already been doing their own investigation. Not a detective, not a private investigator, but a private citizen with a lot of resources. And he planned to solve this case. He was digging up all kinds of new information. But then one day, somebody killed him. New at 10, only Action News Jax was able to get to the condo where Wash Talk was found Thursday. And you can see there the door has been replaced. Someone was after them. The amateur sleuth goes by the name of Eli Washtalk. What happened to all the evidence he collected? And why did he feel like someone was after him? Let's just say that things got a whole lot more complicated than we expected. Now, John and I are picking up the Michelle O'Connell death investigation where Eli Washtalk left off. creators of Twisted and Pretend, this is Criminal Conduct Season 1, an investigative podcast looking into the death of Michelle O'Connell and the murder of Eli Washtock. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Like most summer days, it was hot and humid in St. Augustine, Florida. 
September 2nd, 2010 was going to be the day that Michelle left Jeremy. The plan was simple. Go to the concert, come home, pack up her stuff, and leave. After the concert, Michelle had made plans to hang out with her friend Mindy Fox. But she never made it. Hi, this is Mindy. I was one of Michelle's best friends. Oh, hey, Mindy. How are you? I spoke with Michelle's friend, Mindy. Mindy firmly believes Michelle didn't commit suicide. She says Michelle was leaving Jeremy that night, but says that he wasn't going to let that happen. And so at that time, you thought the two of you were going to be going out together that night? Well, throughout the day, we were texting each other, um, making sure that it was, you know, the game plan was still on, which both of us were like, yep, still, yep, still doing it. We're still having a girls' night. I know she went to the concert, so I figured maybe she just got tired because um, she went to the Paramore concert, and we were supposed to hang out after that. So you knew she was going to that concert? Yeah, so I was messaging her, trying to figure out what we were doing, and I never got a response. I called her. She never answered. I figured maybe she just went to bed. So you weren't concerned that night, necessarily? I mean, I was kind of concerned because she had made a big deal about, promise me we're still hanging out, and you're not going to flake on me. (laughs) I asked Mindy if she knew the details of Michelle's plan. Yeah, she was supposed to break up with him, and... Our plan was we were going to both break up with our guys and we were going to get a place together. But first we were going to move in with our parents and save up some money. And then our, our plan was to move in together with our kids. And it wasn't just Mindy. Michelle O'Connell told plenty of people about her plans to break up with Jeremy. She wanted a fresh start. Teresa Woodward was one of Michelle's high school teachers. Teresa was also a good friend. And days before Michelle's death, she was actually her new boss. You see, Teresa Woodward just hired Michelle to work as a preschool teacher at a child care center. She said Michelle was looking forward to her new life. But most importantly, Teresa says Michelle was gaining independence. She was so thrilled with it. And she had said that she was leaving Jeremy, that that was not a bright spot in her life anymore. And... Everyone had told her, don't tell him and then leave. Just leave and then call him. You know, because we were, everyone was so afraid that he would do something and he would hurt her. And he did. Mindy Fox knew that Michelle was leaving Jeremy. Teresa, Michelle's boss, knew as well. Patty, Michelle's mom, says that their relationship had been going south for some time now. There's going to be a time when they just said, I'm leaving, I'm done, I can't do this anymore for my daughter's sake, for my kid's sake, you know, I'm out of here. And so I think that's what happened with Michelle. She saw this is only getting worse on not staying here. And she did not love him near the end. I I think she actually felt sorry for him. John, what do we know about what happened right before Jeremy Banks picks up the phone and dials 911? It was September 2nd, 2010. Michelle O'Connell, her boyfriend Jeremy Banks, and two of their friends just returned to Jeremy's house in St. Augustine, Florida after a concert. And roughly what time of day was this? It was late. The concert ended around 10 o'clock. About an hour and a half later, at 11.20 p.m., Jeremy Banks calls 911. So the concert ends, Michelle, Jeremy, and the other couple head back to Jeremy's place, which he shares with Michelle and her daughter. Out of context, this doesn't sound like it's going to end in tragedy. 
No, it doesn't. Obviously, there's more to this story. Yeah, Jeremy and Michelle were subtly bickering and arguing throughout the evening. But those around them, they knew they weren't getting along. However, after their friends left, Michelle starts packing her suitcases and telling Jeremy she's moving out. These are the facts as we know them. Now what happens next is not so clear. We only have one living witness, and that's Jeremy Banks. John, walk us through the 911 call. Yeah, let's play the clip. 911. Hey! Uh, please get something to my office. So what do you make of this call? Actually, a lot. Jeremy sounded panicked. His emotions exhibited urgency, but his words did not. And to me, incongruities are an immediate red flag. Why don't his words match his emotion and sentiment? Jeremy began the call with the utterance, hey. He also utilized the word please twice. These polite pleadings were unnecessary. The use of unnecessary words can indicate that the person is not concerned with time urgency. Yet when someone is in an emergency situation, they rarely use extra or unnecessary words. People convey their request in the most efficient manner possible because they subconsciously know that seconds count. But these are his friends and coworkers, right? Why does he keep saying, get someone to my house? Jeremy stated that he wanted the operator to have someone come to his house. He didn't ask for an ambulance or paramedics. He didn't ask for the police. He asked for someone. Jeremy was not asking for specific help. He appeared to be indirectly implying that he needed help. The 911 call is partially redacted, but as far as we know, this call is more than 33 seconds in, and we still don't have any useful information. Exactly. Three sentences into the call, and Jeremy Banks has already demonstrated a lack of time urgency, was overly pleasant, and conveyed a vague request for assistance. He then said send, but then didn't continue with his thought. Had he said send an ambulance or send the paramedics, that would have been a specific request for help. However, he stopped himself before he could actually ask for help for Michelle. But he never does, does he? No. Jeremy went on to say, my girlfriend, I think she just shot herself. The use of the word think was telling. It means either Jeremy didn't know what happened to Michelle or he was noncommittal in his answer. According to Jeremy Banks' later interviews, he was on the other side of the door when Michelle killed herself. He knew what happened. Therefore, the uncertainty in his response indicated that he didn't want to fully commit to his answer. Here's the dispatcher again asking for clarification. She what? Jeremy's initial response indicated that he thought Michelle shot herself. But when asked the same question again, he removed the noncommittal portion of his answer. Jeremy used please two additional times. The repeated use of please appeared to indicate that Jeremy was concerned the dispatcher didn't believe him. Often when people are deceptive, they know what they are saying is not true. Therefore, they think the person they are telling doesn't believe them. It results in the person adding emphasis in repetition as they try to convince the person that what they are saying is actually true and accurate. This is the part of the call that made my eyebrows go up because Jeremy is hysterical. His voice is very high-pitched and the operator thinks he's a woman. And he is highly offended by this. Ma'am, ma'am, I need you to calm down. The operator mistook Jeremy Banks for a woman. Jeremy's response was probably the greatest change in demeanor I've ever heard on a 911 call. He exploded back at the dispatcher. If someone told you a person was screaming at a 911 operator during an emergency, you would think it pertained to a life-threatening situation. No, it resulted from Jeremy being offended. The pleasantries were gone. The emotions were gone and the supposed focus on the victim was completely gone. He couldn't fail to address a slight to his masculinity. 
Initially, Jeremy hysterically cried as he attempted to convey to the dispatcher the situation. When the dispatcher offended him with her comment, his tone changed. He was angry. He demanded respect, even as Michelle is dying next to him. The real Jeremy ripped through his veil of tears and hysteria. I'm not sure if the dispatcher wasn't paying attention or listening closely, but she continues on the same track. Ma'am, ma'am, I need you it's to calm sir, down. It's sir. Ma'am, it's listen to sir. me. It's sir, listen, hang on. Let me tell you the truth. I'm deaf to the Dallas County Sheriff's Office. I work with y'all. Get someone here now. Seconds count in a life-or-death situation, but Jeremy Banks held off providing vital information to the dispatcher so he could demand to be called sir. He stated it twice. Her disrespecting him had to be addressed immediately. Jeremy continued with the unnecessary words, listen, hang on, and let me tell you the truth. The phrase, let me tell you the truth, can be utilized as a means for telling the recipient what he is about to say is important. It could mean that. However, it can also indicate that what he said prior included deception. And based on Jeremy Banks' interview later that evening, he was being deceptive during the first portion of the call. He was pretending like he was someone else because he claimed that he believed acting like a normal scared person would get help there faster. That's what Jeremy later claimed, at least. Of course, everything he said during the call indicated he had no sense of urgency. Oh, so now he's telling us the truth. Yes, in that the information he's conveying is factual. Jeremy went on to inform the dispatcher that he was Deputy Banks, and he worked for the St. John's County Sheriff's Office. Jeremy identified himself as Deputy Banks, not Jeremy Banks. He wanted to be addressed using his title. Why was this important to him during a life-and-death situation? Is she still breathing? No, there's blood coming out of everywhere, please. please. Okay, so I, she's, she's not breathing. After calling Jeremy sir, hence providing him with proper respect, the dispatcher asked him if Michelle was breathing. He provided no hedging in his answer. It was just no. Everywhere, please. Call dispatch on TAC 2. Get them here now. I understand. Sir, they are on the phone. I need you to calm down. Why did Jeremy state, you don't understand? Had he failed to provide any useful information, or is he just sensitive to the accuracy of his claims during the call? Was Jeremy concerned that the dispatcher didn't know Michelle was shot, or that she may not know Michelle allegedly shot herself? Only the first option would be helpful to the immediacy of the situation. Interestingly, during the entire 911 call, Jeremy Banks never spoke to Michelle. He never told her to hold on or to fight. Also, not once during the call did he refer to Michelle by name. Two hours before Michelle died, she texted her sister, and I quote, I'll be there soon. She had planned to pick up her young daughter, Alexis. None of this made sense. If Michelle was planning to move out that night and had plans to pick up her daughter, why would she kill herself? Of course, I don't think that there's any way to make sense of suicide. When someone young like Michelle O'Connell suddenly dies, Everyone who loves her is in denial. Family, friends, no one can believe it. But this case is different. The sheriff's office where Jeremy Banks works as a deputy quickly ruled it a suicide without considering any other possibilities. We've just listened to Jeremy's bizarre 911 call. And there are some other facts here that need to be considered too. The night Michelle died, two shots were fired from Jeremy's service weapon. 
The gun was next to Michelle's left hand. Well, she was right-handed. Michelle had a cut above her right eye. Could there have been a struggle? Two spots of Michelle's blood were found inside Jeremy Banks' t-shirt. And all of this evidence I just told you about was ignored at the scene, and forensic tests didn't happen until five months later. We'll dive deeper into all the evidence in future episodes, but for now, let's try to figure out why the sheriff's office was so quick to rule this a suicide. But the first thing we did was to request every publicly available file on the Michelle O'Connell case. A report from the St. John's County Sheriff's Office states that the officers found the cell phone, painkillers, and muscle relaxers in Michelle's pocket. They checked Michelle's phone and found some concerning text messages. One sent to her sister read, and I quote, Promise me one thing, Lexi will be happy and always have a good life, unquote. And another text to her brother Scott said, quote, Lexi, never forget, unquote. Lexi is Michelle's four-year-old daughter, Alexis. The pills, the haunting text messages, and Jeremy's account of the night's event convinced St. John's Sheriff's Office detectives that this was a clear-cut suicide. This was the same department where Jeremy worked. Everyone at the scene knew Jeremy personally. On September 4, 2010, not even 48 hours since Michelle's death, a St. John's County medical examiner concluded that Michelle's death was the result of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Not once did anyone ever ask Michelle's family what all this means. Whose pills were in Michelle's pocket? Was she suicidal? What did those cryptic text messages mean? Here's Michelle's mother, Patty O'Connell, talking about the St. John Sheriff's Office investigation into her daughter's death. That night, around I think it was like maybe around midnight, there's a knock at my door. I was sound asleep. It was Scott O'Connell, Michelle's older brother. Scott came in and told me that Michelle was, you know, he said, they're saying she killed herself. And I said, no. None of this made sense. Patty says that Michelle would never try to hurt herself. Michelle loved her daughter and was excited to start a new job. She said she had so much to live for. But by the time they broke the news to Patty O'Connell, investigators had already made up their minds. It was a suicide. Nobody asked us any questions. Nobody really wanted our opinion. Nobody asked Patty what did Michelle mean when she texted her siblings, quote, Lexi, never forget. And I said, I want to tell somebody. So I said, um, can I please come in and talk to someone? Patty O'Connell says that she went to go see Lieutenant Charles Bradley, a representative for the St. John's County Sheriff's Office, to offer him information about Michelle and Jeremy's relationship. I said, listen, there's, there's myself and a lot of people want to tell you stuff about Michelle. And he said, no. He says, uh, we, only, we only take information from the witnesses. I said, well, there's people want to tell you about Michelle, you know, about her life. No. And I said, he says, have them write Alexis a letter, a nice letter about her mom, and she can read it when she gets older. They wouldn't even listen to my side of the story. They wouldn't listen. They didn't want to know anything. Patty O'Connell was not an ordinary family member of a victim. At the time of Michelle's death, Patty worked as a file clerk for St. John's County Sheriff's Office. She worked right alongside the same people investigating her daughter's death, including Jeremy Banks. I had gone to the courthouse. I come back. There's Jeremy standing against a door waiting for him to go in and see the sheriff. And I hadn't seen him since Michelle died, that's for sure. I hadn't seen him when Michelle was alive. But, you know, he didn't like me. I didn't like him. 
I saw him and it was just like, I guess it's anxiety. Something happened to me. I was shaky. I went back to my desk. I called my son. I said, come and get me. I got to get out of here. Jeremy's here. Not only did Patty O'Connell have to work with the same person she thought killed her daughter, but she also had to work for this guy. That case was a suicide, tragic suicide. That truthfully could have been predicted. Jeremy Banks had nothing to do with that case. This is the voice of St. John's County Sheriff David Shore. The sheriff is the most powerful law enforcement official in St. John's County. He is untouchable. He answers to no one but voters on Election Day. And his mind is already made up. But I'm telling you, I'm st- I'd stake a 33-year career on it. I'm talking about where the rubber meets the road. He didn't do nothing wrong. This audio was recorded at the St. John's County Sheriff's Office staff meeting. Sheriff Shore is at the podium when he turns his attention to Deputy Jeremy Banks. This guy right here came so damn close to being charged with homicide. It's scary. But this guy walked around. I don't even know, I don't even know if he knows. Of course, he does now how close he came. Based on nothing. Absolutely nothing. Many describe Sheriff David Shore and Jeremy Banks as having a father-son relationship. When Jeremy's father passed away, they said that Sheriff Shore promised to look after Jeremy. During the course of the series, we're going to explore this relationship. And we're also going to look into the culture at St. John's County Sheriff's Office. What lengths did Sheriff Shore go to protect Jeremy? It turns out he did a lot. We all know that in tragedies... We've got heroes, we've got villains, and we have victims. But the vast majority of us kind of are in the middle somewhere and we kind of just float through. We're not going to talk today about the villains in this case. The villains are for me to deal with. So many people have looked into this case, including two additional investigations by the state. Yet nothing substantial has happened. This case was at an impasse. It's been almost 10 years, and Jeremy Banks still has a badge and a gun. Right as John and I began working on this podcast, something huge happened. A private citizen by the name of Eli Washtock, was already looking into this case. He was way ahead of us. And it turns out that he too was skeptical of the official conclusion of suicide in Michelle's case. He felt that the truth was suppressed and he decided that he wanted to uncover what really happened. We wanted to know more about Eli Washtock. Who is he? And what did he find out about Michelle's case? This is Ed Slavin, a local St. Augustine activist and government watchdog. He's talking about the first time he met Eli. I only met him one time, but I was impressed. He reached out to our then mayor, Nancy Shaver, by email and asked her to put him in touch with the Michelle O'Connell family. And I wrote him back and we talked on the phone for 10, 12, 15 hours, maybe, maybe more. Uh, and he told me what his intentions were. After that first meeting, Ed Slavin put Eli Washtock in touch with Patty O'Connell, Michelle's mom. And I get this um, call from Ed, and Ed said, hey, 
this is young man. Uh, he wants to investigate your daughter's death. And he said, I think we should meet him. And so, yeah, I was, all of a sudden I had like a new hope. Ed Slavin said that Eli Washtock wasn't just another person enthralled with the case. There were plenty of those. If you're living in or around St. Augustine or Jacksonville, Florida, you've probably heard all about the Michelle O'Connell case. But Eli Washtock was different. He said, I've got money for days, and it was his intention to solve the case. And he spent tens of thousands of dollars hiring investigators, forensic experts, uh, computer experts, people who were knowledgeable about Facebook, people who were knowledgeable about surveillance. But I can't help but wonder, what is his motivation? Why is he doing this? He said the reason he was trying to help, if what happened to Michelle happened to him, he'd want somebody fighting for him. And Eli Washtock's obsession with this case began producing information about Michelle O'Connell's death. I think in his, like maybe in he was thinking, this is really serious and I'm getting to the truth of what really happened to Michelle. I just thought there's this young man who might have a lot of money and wants to solve the case. Eli put significant time and money investigating Michelle's death. He continued to accumulate information, and then he believes he stumbled on something big. He says to me, this is a bombshell. When Sheriff Shore gets this, you know, this is going to really get him upset. Then, the morning of January 31st, 2019, there was a new development. Someone involved with the Michelle O'Connell case was gunned down. Patty O'Connell quickly picked up the phone to tell Eli. And I text him. He doesn't write me back. So then I call him. And then I, I left a message. I said, Eli, you know, um, I don't know why, but I, you know, someone was killed. But Eli Washtock never returned her call. Next time on Criminal Conduct. Right now, deputies are in this St. John's County neighborhood trying to find out if there is a connection between today's suspicious death of a local father and his interest in the controversial death of a young mother from 2010. Officially, the police investigating Eli's death only referred to it as suspicious. A lot of people who are more on Michelle's side believe Eli was murdered. I think somebody in the sheriff's office knows exactly what happened. I believe Sheriff Shard knows. I believe he knows. I believe, I believe Eli was murdered to keep him quiet. Special thanks to our executive producer, AdvertiseCast, and to Ruby Rose Fox for allowing us to use her song, Bury the Body. Her music is available anywhere you can purchase music. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, make sure to check out our other shows. John Taylor hosts a podcast called Twisted. John unravels intricacies of true crime and does a deep dive analysis of some of the most thought-provoking crime cases. 
And check out the show Pretend Podcast. It's hosted by me, Javier Leva. Pretend is a true crime documentary style podcast about real people pretending to be someone else. I interview con artists and their victims. The links to both of our shows are in the show notes. A new episode of Criminal Conduct is out next week. Creative Power.